Hello and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Wayne Tustin. Wayne received his BSAE degree from the University of Washington in 1944, and he started at Boeing in 1948, where he was introduced to shock and vibration testing while working on an early version of the B-52 bomber. He moved on to MB Electronics, which at that time was the world's largest manufacturer of shakers for vibration testing. Wayne started traveling the world, consulting and training on shock and vibration testing since 1962. In 1995, he founded the Equipment Reliability Institute, where he and his team of consultants offer on-site and remote training for testers, designers, quality and reliability engineers, and their managers. Wayne has written several books that have become required reading and valuable references for reliability professionals. Wayne, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Wayne, can you take us back to the beginnings of vibration and shock testing at Boeing in the 1950s? How did how did you get your start in reliability engineering? Hmm, that's quite a question. Um, well, there there was a full scale mock up of the B-52, and I was somewhat involved in what's called modal testing experimentally verifying the predicted resonances of the in-flight aircraft. Uh, then I got involved in what was called GAPA, G-A-P-A, ground-to-air pilotless aircraft. Uh-huh. And the electronics parts of that unit worked fine until somebody started the rocket engine. And intense noise and vibration from that disrupted the electronics. It just couldn't couldn't handle it. Right. And that that was the beginning of our search for and understanding of what is called random vibration. Right. Which was different from the kind of of vibration that we had previously known on piston-engined aircraft. And to reproduce that kind of vibration in the lab, we had to have shakers. As as you mentioned, I was later with a shaker company. And I was fairly useful to them because at least I knew what a shaker was. Right, of course. Lots of people at that time did not, and many people still don't know. And the the latest wrinkle is going in all axes simultaneously. At first, maybe I'm jumping ahead too 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 fast on this, but at first, people used a single shaker. They put their hardware on the vibrating part of that shaker and shook the hardware in its x-axis and later in its y-axis and then a third test shaking it in its z-axis. Whereas in the real world, in the real flight environment, 
you get all axes simultaneously. Sure. And so the current developments in many labs around the world, well, no, I have to say there's still relatively few labs so far, are using multiple shakers, a minimum of three, to get multi-axis vibration. Three shakers driven by each by driven by a power amplifier. Right, right. And that's taking place in some labs in various countries, including China, Japan. So, Wayne, how was Boeing doing reliability testing at that time? Back in the in the nineteen fifties, what 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 approach? What what was their what what kind of uh, uh, um, you know what what equipment was available to do this kind of testing at that well, time? Well, it, it had it had just recently progressed to single axis electrodynamic shakers. So that was considered to be a big advance at that at that time. Yeah, yeah. Were were they uh, this this problem that you described with the, the jet engines? It uh, it sounds like they were highly motivated to find a solution here. They were. Did you feel that uh, reliability testing really got a lot of attention at Boeing at that time? Absolutely. Uh, but uh, the earliest vibration tests only went to about 500 hertz frequency. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that was sufficient with piston engine aircraft. But once we started using jet engines, the, there were higher frequencies present. We had to get new instrumentation to go to those higher frequencies and found out what, what, we, what the problems were. And so we had to develop shakers that could go up, up in frequency to 2,000 hertz. There was there was nothing commercially available at that time, right? There was nothing commercially available. They had to build their own. Had to be developed. Had wow. Stiffer stiffer armatures in the shakers. Right, right. Wayne, you were a recent graduate as an electrical engineer. How how did you get roped into doing reliability engineering? <laughs> I'm not sure now how it how it happened, <laughs> but but. Uh, these shakers were definitely electrical in nature, and, and uh, were, were we at, at first there were tube type amplifiers, and that was what I had learned about in in college. But within a few years, it went to solid state, much more compact amplifiers. Took up right. less lab space less heat in the lab and so forth. You know, Wayne, one of the things that, that, that uh, I think really creates a lot of problems for reliability engineers today is this relationship with uh, designers. Uh, did, did, did you feel that you had a good relationship with the design engineers at Boeing? Did you feel that they were really interested in, in the results from all this reliability testing? Oh, Absolutely. Did they they were they were really interested in the results and trying to make sure that they improved the designs. Yes. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I think this is one of the problems that we see a lot these days is this interaction or this uh, uh, trying to get design engineers to pay attention to reliability can be a problem. Is there anything 
Any, well, any lessons that we've learned? Yeah. There, there is there is some truth there. Uh, getting the designer to go down to the lab and ask questions. And yeah, is is very important. They're interested in the results, but they don't want. <laughs> some of them don't want to. Shall we say, get their hands yeah. dirty? You know, it seems like we have to wait until there's a crisis, until there's some kind of terrible event, you know, some kind of uh, catastrophic outcome before we get the attention of the of the designers. Do you do you have any other any other suggestions about how we can do a better job there? Well, I think they should learn some of this in school, but yep. they don't. The universities really don't don't teach not even climatic environments, let alone the dynamic environments. They, they should. We I guess that's to, one of the reasons. We, uh, we have one of the reasons. I think, I think, excuse me, I think it's important that, that, that we learn in school the importance of failure. We learn from right. failure. I agree. I agree. Okay. That's a good point. People seem to be uh, they, they they seem to be afraid of failure, but they don't want to try to learn from it. Well, the professors haven't haven't learned how important failures are. I guess that's one of the reasons why ERI has been offering so many training programs and have been so successful. But I'm sure you would like to see uh, better education of reliability engineers. Absolutely. What do you think? You, you, you talked about uh, uh, failure. Do you think reliability engineers are learning about failure modes? I mean, that's pretty standard, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But, but so often they are surprised. Mm -hmm. New kinds of failures show up to their, to their surprise. They weren't, weren't expecting. Got it. I guess that's, is that just something that comes with experience, or how much can we really help people learn about that in the classroom? Well, we, we do so little study of failures in the classroom that practically anything would be an improvement. But I don't think that most university professors are geared for that. Right. They, again, they focus on, is that because they focus too much on, on the, the theory and, and not enough on the practical application? I'd say that's a good, a good, good statement, yeah. Um, you, I think you mentioned to me before that we don't really get a lot of uh, people who do the teaching don't really have a lot of experience. Uh, they're not experienced engineers themselves. You know, they don't see a lot of uh, real-world applications. I think that's a good, good, good statement. Wayne, looking at the people that come to your training classes, um, you, you've done a lot of training over the years in this area. I mean, what, what, what are some of the, what do you see all kinds of different people, or what are some of the typical people that that uh, that, that come to your training? Oh, well, I, I think we get a variety. Uh, I, I don't think I can give you a snappy answer on that. No, no, but I was, guess I was curious: are are the the right people? Attending? Are you getting? Uh, are you? Uh, are are the people that can really benefit? You know, are they the ones that are coming into the classroom? 
I, I think so, yes. Or, or, to, or to say it a different way, are there people that you wish were, were getting more training? <laughs> you wish were getting more, uh, more of those kind of people in the classroom? Well, I wish we would get more bosses. Ah, yeah. Because what, what, why is that? Well, they they send they send the new the new guys and some experienced engineers, but I think to a large extent their hands are tied when they go back to work because their bosses didn't get didn't get the lessons. Boy, that's got to be frustrating to come back. You take this great training program and then you go back to your place of business and. Uh, and uh, you're not you're not uh, able to use the new skills. Is is that what you're saying? To to some extent, yes. Um, have you had students come back to you and say, "Boy, I really enjoyed those classes, but I can't uh, can't seem to make any difference here." I have I have had ex students say just exactly that. What what kind of suggestions would you have for those people? Um, there really isn't much that I can say to them because I don't know their organization. Ah, the, the, the solution depends on where they're working, right? Right. Gotcha. And uh, also, take for example this idea of three amplifiers driving three shakers. That's a right. hell of a big hell of a big financial investment. That's a good point. That their company or their military activity isn't funded for. Hmm. It, it, was right. a struggle, it was a struggle for them to get one shaker, let alone three. Right. right. Yeah, these are expensive tests. I mean, even if you, uh, even if you don't own the equipment yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Are, are 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 there other improvements in shock and vibration testing, Wayne, that have uh, that you think are particularly noteworthy that have happened over the last you know twenty years or so? Or is the basic the basic technique pretty much unchanged? Other than other than multi-axis, uh, things are very much the same as they were. 20 years ago. Gotcha. No. I, I'm sure the, the shakers More, themselves have probably improved a little bit, haven't they? Some, uh, but also uh, intense noise testing has become quite important. Mm. Air coupled from super speakers into hardware, causing the hardware ah. to vibrate. You know, it's it's kind of easy to understand why a company like Boeing would be interested in vibration because of the nature of their products. Um, I guess uh, over over time, a lot of companies have become more concerned about uh, shock and, and vibration. Uh, can you think of any companies that uh, that you've been working with that uh, that you um, you know might not expect to be committed to? You know, our listeners might be surprised to hear that they're doing a lot of shock and vibration. Are there 
are maybe not companies, but are there industries? Are there uh, are there, there types of businesses that are doing um, shock and, and vibration that you might not expect? Well, at this instant, I can't think of any. Uh-huh. All the usual after, suspects. After we, right? When we when we Aeros, off Aeros. the air, I'll, I'll think of several. <laughs> that's, the it, that's the way it always works. I mean, aerospace, uh, automotive, th- those are pretty obvious choices. But even uh, even in consumer electronics, we see some interest in shock and vibration also, right? Well, what electronics are you thinking about? Ah, things like PCs or, or phones or laptops. Well, okay, let's take laptops. They get dropped. Sure. And we want them to survive, especially if they should drop while the while they're recording, while on disc. It's free falling, and before it arrives at the floor, we want to protect it. Right, and right. There, are, there, there is circuitry developed to do exactly that. Wayne, are are you seeing a lot of? Uh, I know you do a lot of travel um, all over the world. Do you, no, are, excuse are you me, the same? no more. Excuse me, <laughs> no, no, no more. I'm, ah, good I'm for backing. You. Good for you. I'm backing backing off on that. I'm ninety. <laughs> I'm ni- ninety plus now. <laughs> That's smart. That's smart. Um, what, what's the state of shock and rely, shock and vibration testing outside the U.S.? I mean, do, do they do other countries have the same access to this kind of testing that we have here in in North America? I believe so. The same idea of you know some kind of uh, centralized test lab that can do um, that can take on testing for other companies. Well. When you let's talk about our own country, what are you thinking about when you say centralized test lab? Well, an independent lab that's not owned by a specific, uh, uh, that's not a, a captive lab. Well, okay. Well, there are labs whose business is testing. Right. They do test so for other people. Right. Uh, but then there are companies like Boeing, for example, that have their own labs and do their own tests. Right. So do, do we see independent test, test labs outside the U.S.? Do, is that a common thing as well? There aren't as many commercial test labs, but there are government labs in other countries. So that's, that's good. I mean, you know, we really... Uh, uh, be, be, it would be great if we could, if our suppliers, you know, for electronics components, had available to this uh, technology as well. Uh huh. Wayne, your your training seminars. I'm I'm sure over the years you've had some uh, a lot of a, a variety of different people that attend, a variety of different companies, and so on. I wonder if you could share with us some of the some of the more common questions that you hear at your training seminars. Well, people have difficulty in accepting the idea of random vibration containing 
all frequencies, a continuum mm. of frequencies. It is much more logical for people to expect vibration to occur at definable frequencies. Ah, I see. What we might call a line spectrum. Right, right. As opposed to random vibration, which has a continuous spectrum. And the concept of all frequencies at once is rather hard for some people to accept. It was hard for me, but then somebody pointed out to me that white light has a continuum of wavelengths, a continuum of frequencies. And white random vibration is just like that. Although, of course, much lower in frequency down in the audio range. Yeah, that's a great comparison. I like your I like your analogy to, to white light. I think that's is. Uh, does that help people understand it uh, a little better? Yes, definitely. And then uh, we say that that a sound something like this right. gives us continue gives us a continuous spectrum. And if we have a microphone and a spectrum analyzer and a spectral display, they can see that spectrum. Right, right. Good point. Wayne, you've seen so much in the world of shock and vibration testing. I wonder if you'd like to try your hand at predicting the future here. Do you see any uh, uh, emerging trends or anything that's uh, new and, and different oh. that's on the horizon that might be a surprise? For a lot of people, this multi-axis vibration is just getting started. Hmm. Interesting. Was, was, was that fit your, your question? Yeah, I think so. I think it does. Uh, this, is, this is something, uh, you know, that obviously is emerging. Um, can, can, you say, can you explain a little bit? Yeah. Well, it's, it's faster to do all three yeah. tests at once, and it's more effective. It finds failures that, one, that single axis at a time doesn't find. Right. Good point. The real, world is, yeah, the real world is multi-axis. Right. And that ultimately, isn't that our goal? You know, this is not just about, I, I think sometimes we run these tests hoping that they won't fail. I mean, just we're just looking to for an item that we can check off the checklist, you know? Yep, yep. Uh, we, should uh -huh. be, we should be trying to simulate the real environment as closely as possible, right? Yeah. I, I quite agree with you. Very good. Wayne, do you have any other uh, any other advice or suggestions for the reliability engineers out there? Huh. Again, this uh, I'll, I'll, I'll think of it once we go off the air. <laughs> no, that's all right. You know, I, I was just thinking, Wayne, it's kind of a, sometimes it can be a lonely job as a reliability engineer. You're out there uh, running tests and uh, you're finding uh, failure modes and so on. I guess, uh, I, I don't know if you want to give offer any words of encouragement. Well, I myself haven't done tests, haven't performed tests for a long while. So maybe I'm not the, maybe I'm not the right person to give that kind <laughs> well, of advice. 
you, you've made a great career out of reliability engineering. Um, it certainly has uh, uh, been a great uh, career choice for you. Maybe it wasn't what you set out to do at Boeing so many years ago, but uh, uh, it's, certainly, it's turned out it's it's turned out pretty well. I think you would agree. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, <laughs> been a very interesting time and 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 fun and f fulfilling. I'm sure. Uh -huh. Great. Well, listen, Wayne, thanks so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate your insights. Okay. That I'm was... Great talking to you. Thanks very much. That was Wayne Huston, pre president of Equipment Reliability Institute. For more information about ERI and their training programs, visit equipment-reliability.com. This is Tim Rogers. Thanks very much for joining us.